We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everyone. Hope you're all coping and surviving and following the strategies to flatten the curve. Stay home, wash your hands, all the things we need to do to stay healthy and get past the peak of this coronavirus pandemic and eventually get ourselves back to a normal way of life. Part of the coping strategies for sports fans like us who are missing March Madness, the start of baseball, the playoff push and basketball and hockey, all that. Well, we've been watching old games on YouTube or the various networks and one of the things I've enjoyed is watching sports movies. Not much changes for me in that regard. I've always loved watching and re-watching my favorite sports movies. Now is a chance, though, for everyone to rediscover them in the absence of real sports, or perhaps find some new ones to enjoy. Last Saturday night, I watched Secretariat with my family and saw that for the first time. Really enjoyed that movie, starring Diane Lane as Penny Tweedy, the owner of the great Secretariat. Nice work also by Kevin Connolly of Entourage fame. He plays William Knack, the legendary Sports Illustrated writer who wrote the book Secretariat. That movie was produced by Mark Charty, who was a guest on my last episode of 30 with Murdy. Charty, a former big league pitcher with the Milwaukee Brewers, has spent the last 20 years as a movie producer in Hollywood making great sports movies like The Rookie, Miracle, Million Dollar Arm, and Invincible, in addition to Secretariat. And here's a funny story. After texting Charlie the link to the podcast we did, after it posted, I sent along a note with it and said, hey, thanks for for doing it. And he wrote, yeah, I did his podcast last week. Ha ha. I was a little confused. I wrote, you mean mine? Yes, thanks again. And he replied, OMG, I thought this was from D.B. Sweeney. Sorry for the confusion. Well, D.B. Sweeney, if you don't know, is a terrific actor, and he's been in some of the great rewatchable sports movies that I've been talking about. And so with the help of Mark Charty's goofy text, I asked him to reach out to D.B. D.B. reached out to me, and here we are for the latest episode of 30 with Murdy. You know D.B. Sweeney as Shoeless Joe Jackson in Eight Men Out and as Doug Dorsey, the hockey player turned figure skater in The Cutting Edge, opposite Mara Kelly. His latest project is called Too Dumb Mix. It's a short film that Sweeney wrote and produced and it co-stars Rudy, Sean Astin. They are already getting some film festival buzz and hopefully working towards a series of short films that star Sweeney and Aston as a pair of not-too-bright guys in some really funny situations. You can watch the premiere, the pilot, 
this coming Tuesday, April 1st. It's streaming on Facebook Live at Too Dumb Mix. That's D-U-M-M-I-C-K-S. Don't be offended. There are two guys named Mickey. It's at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Tuesday, April 1st. Sweeney and Aston will take part in a Q&A right after that. This past weekend, I had a chance to chat with my sort of namesake, D.B. Sweeney, about his New York roots, his love of sports and movies, and the stories behind his more memorable roles, including Shoeless Joe Jackson. Here is my conversation with D.B. Sweeney. First thing I want to ask you, DB, is uh, as we're sitting around here trying to recreate sports, a lot of us are talking about watching sports movies and, uh, you know, the ones that make us feel good. What are some of your favorites to watch besides the ones that you're in? Well, I think the greatest sports movie of all time, I'd say there's three. Uh, Slapshot, which I watched again last week. I love that movie. Um, And then there's Rocky and Hoosiers. Those are, I think, my three favorites, and I've watched them all over the last couple of weeks. So uh, uh, I, I'm digging a little deeper now. I think we're going to do Field of Dreams later today. Yeah. There are a lot of them. Yeah, and it's, and it's kind of a good um, way to recreate or just kind of channel our, our sports fandom into uh, something that kind of brings us some of that same joy, isn't it? It is, you know, and, and I, I think it's great. The, the, the storytelling that seems to work in those movies is, is, is you know, kind of traditional and uh, not, I don't want to say predictable because if a movie's predictable, then it's not, you know, going to be as entertaining if, if there's some twists and turns. But those movies have a certain template, I think, that, that, that is pleasing to us in, in the sense that it's relaxing and reassuring. And, and you grew up a sports fan, so, I mean, this is kind of natural for you to kind of uh, go back and reach back to some of these and enjoy some sports movies. Yes, it's been great. I mean, I because I, I, I my kids are home more than they would be. You know, they uh, have a senior in high school and a sophomore, and, and normally they'd either be at school or they'd be with their friends. So, I, I mean, I'm looking at the bright side here with this uh, quarantine, but it's nice to have them around so much, and I've gotten them to sit through a couple of these movies, too. What are their favorites now that you've kind of introduced them to some? Well, my daughter's still all about Harry Potter, and I mean, not because she's the right age for it anymore, but just because of the nostalgia of it, I think. Yeah. And my son is pretty much, uh, he's pretty strict. It's either James Bond or a space movie. Wow. Which is kind of random, but that's what that's what he likes. All right. Uh, so before we start getting to some of your career, uh, I want to know how a kid who grew up on Long Island and was a teenager when Thurman Munson and Reggie Jackson, everybody was doing their thing. How did he become a Red Sox fan? I first really became aware of baseball in 1967, which uh, obviously puts an expiration date on me, but I was six years old, and uh, the Red Sox obviously were making their magical run. Carl Stremski was a name you heard everywhere, and he was from Long Island. So it just caught my imagination. Wow, there's a guy from a town, you know, a couple towns over who's playing in the big leagues, and that's awesome. So I followed that, and uh, it just stuck, you know, the way – I guess everybody has their first moment. Uh, you know, people who have a team out of their geographic area, I think a lot of times it's due to the fact that some team was successful, you know, that they heard about in the media and started to follow them. So that was my story. And then as I was in high school, uh, I was a sophomore and playing baseball, and the town of Stremski is from Bridgehampton, and there was a bar there called Billy's Triple Crown. And the rumor was, if you go in there and you say that you're a Red Sox fan, the guy who owned the place would buy you a beer, even if you weren't, <laughs> even if you weren't 18. So... It was true. The place was called Billy's Triple Crown, and it was Carl Yastrzemski was a pitcher in high school, I guess, and this was his catcher. And this guy, had a, it, the whole place was a shrine to Carl Yastrzemski. It was pretty cool. 
And so I went there with my buddies who were sophomores in high school, and this guy's giving us beers, and he gave us a couple more. Of course, my Yankee fan friends were all like, uh, yeah, we're Red Sox fans. <laughs> and so after about two or three beers, this guy started talking. He got really bitter, and he was talking about how I made that guy. I should be on the Red Sox with him, and it, was, it got a little weird, but it was still a great memory. Did you, uh, did you get a lot of grief from your friends who were all Yankees fans in the area? I mean, it, it, until uh, you know, until the bloody sock and Kurt Schilling, it was all pretty much suffering and abuse. So you never really got taken seriously as a Red Sox fan. You were just sort of like a redheaded stepchild. And, you know, they, they could just heckle you. So there was never any kind of real rivalry because the Red Sox never won. Yeah, and uh, so I guess you've been having the last laugh for the last uh, 15, 16 years here. It's been pretty good. You know, I mean, my brother is a staunch Yankee fan, season ticket holder to this day. Uh, he still lives in New York, obviously. And, uh, he, you know, so I get to, I get to give it to him a little bit. But the truth is, the Red Sox had, I was never a big Manny Ramirez fan. Like, I obviously admire his skill. But yeah. there were, during that era of the Pedro Martinez and, and uh, uh, Manny Ramirez, I, I thought, you know, I was rooting for Don Zimmer in that fight with Pedro Martinez, you know, and, 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 <laughs> It was hard for me to root against Paul O'Neill and Mariano Rivera and Derek Jeter and all the great Yankees of that era. So it was, I was kind of conflicted. I wasn't rooting for the Yankees, but I wasn't hating on them as hard as I normally did. Yeah, and uh, I guess you live in Chicago now, and you found a, a new love with the uh, Cubs thanks to your friend John Cusack, huh? Yeah, you know, I go I go along to Wrigley because I love Wrigley, but but really my heart's on the South Side. You know, ever since Eight Men Out, uh, the, the White Sox have been so good to me, and and they sort of like treat me like you know kind of a member of the extended family. Kenny Williams, the, uh, the president, now he was a general manager for many years. He's a good friend of mine. And so I go down there and, you know, uh, for the White Sox fans, I'm sure this Joe. So um, I, I, I love the Cubs too. You know, I mean, both of those atmospheres I think are as good as uh, some of the best atmospheres in baseball, especially Wrigley. I mean, with the Cubs winning now, obviously it's, uh, it's you know, it's very festive and fun. But, uh, but the South Side, you got real hardcore baseball fans. It's pretty fun to go there. That must be pretty neat to be a guy who, you know, grew up as a sports fan. You make one movie, you know, over 30 years ago dealing with, a, you know, not the, the, the brightest spot in that team's history, yet they still embrace you and, uh, and uh, treat you like, like gold there, huh? It is, it is pretty funny. And, and I got last summer I got invited up to the owner's box, and uh, I had met Jerry Reinsdorf many years ago, and I knew that, you know, the, the anniversary of, it was last year was 2019, obviously, right. and uh, the, the, uh, that was the 100th anniversary. And I said to Kenny, I said, hey, Jerry, maybe Jerry wants to do some kind of screening of the movie because <laughs> uh, for a charity, you know, for the Southside uh, kids, you know, we could raise some money or something. And he, and Kenny kind of set me up. He goes, go ask him. And I, and I pitched him, and Reinsdorf said, we don't celebrate that around here. <laughs> so I thought, okay, that's the end of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess uh, you had a little more luck with Chicago. Was I reading that you were basically considered a good luck charm to John Cusack? Yeah, you know, it started. I started that run in 2016. I started going with him, and uh, uh, you know, he's he's a really passionate Cubs fan, obviously. And uh, so, and there was a bunch of other friends too that were Chris Kellios and Bonnie Hunt and Joe Montana. There's a bunch of people that are that are friends of mine. They're from here. That, that that was like a once in a lifetime. Well, for so many people, it's a once in a lifetime. And I was sort of more of an observer. You know, I, I wasn't rooting against the Cubs, but I was, you know, uh, along for the ride. So Cusack started bringing me to games because he had a, like a little, um, like a mini skybox. And, you know, he liked to watch games by himself, which is sort of a story unto itself. Why would you get a skybox? He gets a skybox and doesn't talk to anybody. <laughs> and then, so he always had extra tickets. And he started noticing that when I'd come by, he'd just leave me a ticket. I'd come by, every time I came by, they won. So when they got to the playoffs, he started calling me and saying, you got to come, you got to come. So it was pretty fun. 
So uh, I want to get back to your baseball career because before you were Shoeless Joe and Eight Men Out, you actually played ball, wanted to play ball, and it wasn't just high school, college. You played overseas. I did. Uh, that was sort of my bad career management. Um, <laughs> probably in uh, the, the hottest period of my career in the early 90s, I, w- I did a movie in Portland, Oregon, and I guess I should go back a little bit. When I did Eat Men Out, um, I should go back even a little bit more. I played a little bit in college at Tulane University. I was an outfielder, right-hand hitting, uh, not that big, uh, not great speed, so I was kind of a tweener, like a good hitting for average, but I couldn't hit home runs. I couldn't steal bases, so it's you know, not really what anybody would call a blue chipper or anything like that. But I could play a little bit, and then I got hurt, and I became an actor. And when Eight Men Out came along, I thought, well, Shoeless Joe Jackson, he's a lefty. Nobody's ever done a baseball movie that where, where it looks like a baseball movie. And at that time, you know, Bull Durham hadn't come out yet. I thought costume was unbelievable on Bull yeah. Durham. But that had, we filmed at the same time. And so I thought, here's my chance to, you know, to really make my mark. So I, I spent two months with the Kenosha Twins in the Midwest League, learning to hit left-handed and also trying to soak up what baseball might have been like in 1919, as opposed to, you know, even in the 80s, players are already staying in first-class hotels and making a lot of money and flying on planes. And, you know, so I thought riding the buses of A-ball would be closer to big league baseball in 1919. So I had a great summer, made friends with a bunch of people. Five years later, I'm filming this movie in Portland. And uh, the Portland AAA team was called the Portland Beavers. And five of the guys from the A-ball team in 1988 had been promoted to AAA, including my roommate, Terry Jorgensen. Hmm. So they said, come on down and, uh, you know, take some BP. Because every game I was with the Twins, I, uh, you know, I took, I took BP before every game I was in uniform. They wouldn't let me play because the Twins controlled, you know, the lineup. Because so, they pay all the salaries. So the big league club, you know, doesn't let anybody that the A-ball manager wants to put in the game play. It's right. up to the big club. So I never got to play. But anyway, um, uh, five years later, uh, I go down to take BP, and I'd always hit lefty during my BP in, in A-ball. So this time I hit righty, and I just had one of those crazy BPs. And I hit a bunch of home runs, which I never did. And the pitching coach for the Portland Beavers said, hey, what are you doing after you finish this movie you're working on? I said, I don't know, probably do another movie. And he said, why don't you come to Australia and play, uh, I need an outfielder, come play baseball in Australia. Hmm. And I uh, did it. So, How'd that go? Well, it was, a, it was a great experience. It was unbelievable, uh, you know, life experience. But I come back, my agent couldn't understand it because I literally was offered more money during that period of four months when I was in Australia than any other time in my life. My agent didn't know how to explain to people, he's following his dream, he's playing baseball, he's in Australia, it's great. Instead, she told everybody in L.A. that I was in rehab. So, <laughs> so I came back, like, I'm in rehab in Australia. I couldn't believe that was her version of what was better than playing baseball. So... <laughs> So I come back, and I'm like, I didn't have time in my life. I'm telling everybody this is the greatest thing ever happened to me. And I go into a meeting with a cast director, and the cast director leans in, and I'd met the guy before, and he goes, hey, how you doing, DB? Are you okay? And I was like, yeah, man, I'm awesome. I got it out of my system. I feel great. So he nods because he got the answer he was looking for. I'm, I'm clean or whatever. So I go to another meeting. It's the same kind of thing. And uh, this guy says to me, so are you working the program? And then it all comes together for me. I was like, what? What are you talking about? And he said, well, I understand you went to Australia for rehab. I said, are you kidding me? I'd never quit drinking. It's the only thing I'm good at. <laughs> uh, so, uh, the, uh, but there was a knee injury that happened somewhere along the way that basically kept you from continuing this. Yeah, well, that, that was earlier on when I was in college. Okay. I hurt my knee and, uh, you know, I had to, I 
kind of got bounced out of the two-lane program because I hurt my knee on a motorcycle. And freshmen weren't allowed on motorcycles, so there wasn't a lot of love lost for a Yankee in New Orleans anyway. But, uh, uh, I mean, north of the Mason-Dixon Mason line, Yankee, not a, obviously Yankee fan. Sure, yeah. But uh, they, uh, um, so I, I kind of was washed out of that program, and I went back home to New York, and I thought, and my dad was a guidance counselor in high school, and he was like, you got to be in college, you got to be in college. So my sister was at NYU, and I went to visit her, and I thought, well, this would be a cool place to go to college. I didn't have any baseball, and my knee was still twice the normal size. I was rehabbing and trying to get it better. And uh, so anyway, I, uh, I thought, well, I'll go to school here, and what would be easy I had done a play in high school. That, that'd probably be easy. There'd be a lot of pretty girls. I'll just do that. <laughs> so I literally gave it that much thought. I auditioned. They put me in. Um, I actually auditioned with a, a monologue that I carved out of the book Catcher in the Rye um, oh. because Holden Caulfield's big brother's name is D.B. Oh. And uh, he went he went to Hollywood and became an asshole in the book. He's a screenwriter. <laughs> so that's you know sort of like uh, where I got that idea to do that monologue because I love that book. And uh, kind of ties into Field of Dreams too, because that was the inspiration for that with Salinger. And right. uh, anyway, they took me and put me in the, uh, the program, and I couldn't get any parts in the plays that they were doing at NYU. So I just started doing plays with my friends. Like we found this empty room at NYU, and I just said to the to the dean, I said, "Can we use this room? Nobody's using it." And we started doing plays, and nobody knew how to be a director or do lights or anything. So we all just kind of figured it out. And uh, by the third year of doing that, I had started inviting agents and casting directors and stuff, and one came, and I got an agent out of it. So, hmm. you know, it kind of worked out. There you go. Uh, and you had a, a couple of TV and movie roles, but I think the first role that everybody kind of knew who you were was Eight Men Out. What was the uh, what was the baseball activity and the uh, the training like for that? I mean, you mentioned how you, know, you obviously were, were naturally a good player and had played a little bit, uh, but as – all of you guys are getting ready to play. What was the athletic uh, aspect of it like? It was really fun. We got there two weeks early uh, to Indianapolis where we filmed it because the, the you know the Comiskey Park was not available. The old Comiskey was not available to us because at that time the contract maybe it's still the contract of Major League Baseball is you can't contract even if you're 35 games out in August, which the White Sox were. Yeah. They couldn't make a deal to film a movie at Comiskey in uh, October because they have to keep it open in case uh -huh. they make the World Series. Okay. So we ended up in Indianapolis. At that time, it was a AAA stadium for the I think it was Indianapolis Indians. Now it's a sprint car racing track or something. But uh, so we ended up filming there, and we got there two weeks early. And our baseball advisor was Ken Berry, who was the uh, you know, tremendous uh, outfielder, uh, defensive outfielder, especially for the uh, California Angels and the yeah. Royals, and I can't remember who else he played for. But he was a great guy, and he helped us, uh, you know, get ready. And, and it was fun watching him because. It was all levels of baseball experience. Like like I had played, Charlie Sheen had played, um, and David Strathairn and, and Bill Irwin had not played at all. And so they, you know, they were sort of approaching it more like choreography. And Bill Irwin is like the great Broadway clown, tremendous talent. He had n he had never played any ball sports at all. And so he had to do one play in the movie where he's playing um, he's playing Eddie Collins, the second baseman. He's got to turn a double play. And so they showed him the footwork, like choreography, like uh, and step and turn, and, and he learned this choreography. And then they threw the ball, and the ball had to basically hit his glove because he had no, you know, hand eye to catch a ball. And so they they kept doing these takes where he would do the perfect footwork and put his hand in the right position, and if the guy threw the ball right there, and then finally it worked, and that's in the movie. So it was it was interesting to watch them piece together non baseball players looking like baseball players. And listen, you you were a baseball fan, so you know some of the history. But I I know that uh, I read that you were 
as you were doing research on Shula's show, one of the things that stood out to you about him was that he wasn't as dumb as he was portrayed in the movie. Uh, what did you take from what you got to learn about Shoeless Joe versus what the general public perception is about him? Well, I think Shoeless Joe is a much more complicated character than we were able to do in the movie. And I get it. It was an ensemble movie. And, and uh, you know, John Sales had a certain take on the movie where it was sort of like uh, uh, class warfare. But the reality was, the baseball players were very well paid. Uh, you know, the, the whole uh, myth of Charlie Comiskey uh, being this evil owner is just not true. He was a former player. And, you know, some of the White Sox were among the most highly play, paid players in the league. And it was tough times in the, in the country. And there were a lot of people out of work. And so they weren't like these abused, uh, you know, un, underpaid players. So uh, like Eddie Seacott, the pitcher that David Strathairn played, I, I think he was making $6,000 a year, which, hmm. you know, that's like $6 million a year right now. It's yeah. not like he was being robbed. And uh, I don't know if that's the right conversion, but something like that. And the other thing I found about Shoeless Joe is that he wasn't really that dumb. He was more like, uh, I remember when there was an all-star game in the 70s where Pete Rose showed up and he had like a big fur coat on. And it was obviously a very expensive fur coat, but it was such a wrong fur coat to be wearing to a baseball stadium. And and that was sort of like what I thought about Shoeless Joe, that he finally, yes, he was a naive rube at one point, but he didn't play in the league for about eight years. He was considered the best hitter in baseball. Everybody respected now he just wanted to be left alone. So that was my view of him. Um, but in the movie, it was important to John that he seemed dumber than that. You uh, you mentioned how you learned to hit lefty for it, and that's one of the things that stands out about being authentic. Because compared to you know one of the, one of the uh, critiques of Field of Dreams is that Ray Liotta batted right-handed, and baseball nerds like me like to point that out. Uh, obviously, both wonderful films, but every time somebody makes a list of the best baseball movies. Amen Out is kind of near the top because of the story of it. And as a guy who appreciates the athleticism and the movie making of it, what do you think about that? Well, I think, I mean, Field of Dreams is a tremendous movie. And, uh, you know, I, it's, it's one of the, one of, I, obviously I tell you about going to Australia in the middle of my, you know, hottest period of my career. I also made a terrible mistake with Field of Dreams. They asked me to do that movie to play Shoeless Joe Jackson. And wow. That would have been my fourth movie. And I, I was terrified that, I would be typecast as a guy who was a former baseball player who could only play baseball players. So I, I talked them out of it. I, I turned it down. And, and uh, you know, I think really did a great job. I think people are too hard on him for the righty-lefty thing because mm-hmm. I've been on movies where they bring in at the last minute. You don't have a chance to prepare. And, you know, it's it, it, you just do the best you can. And, and I had the luxury on eight men out of, you know, I had six-month lead time. So right. you don't usually get that. Yeah. And as far as, like, best baseball movies, you talked about Bull Durham, which had not come out yet. I mean, Amen Out is is always at the top of that list. Um, where do you kind of think that falls, and what are some of the other baseball movies that you enjoy besides the ones we talked about? Well, I really like The Rookie. I thought The Rookie was great. Um, I, I think I think Bang the Drum Slowly is maybe the most overrated baseball movie. I think hmm. the baseball is as bad as it gets in that movie. Um I think that Pride of the Yankees uh, is a little overrated. I mean, it's fun to watch Babe Ruth, but, you know, Gary Cooper is not athletic at all. And <laughs> baseball feels kind of corny in a way, you know, so yeah. I, I understand it's a, a product of its time. And it, it does have that, that, you know, emotional punch that takes it over right. the top, but the baseball aspect of it is not, not very good. Um, Fear Strikes Out is an underrated movie. Um, yeah, Jimmy Pearsall, yep. uh, the Anthony Perkins movie. And uh, I'm trying to think of what the other ones uh, I think the love of the game is good. I mean, Costner, I think, is good anytime he plays a baseball player because, you know, he's a very good baseball player, So he, and he understands the world. 
Um, you know yeah, what's funny that, about For Love of the Game is that you know it's you're right it, it's it's a decent movie it's an okay movie it's not a great movie but every time it's on I treat it like it's a perfect game because I I don't want to turn it off I catch it in the middle and I'm like okay well here he is Billy Chappell's doing a perfect game I got to see if he if he completes it yeah I think it's it's really skillfully done and, and uh, you know I mean anytime Costner's in a movie I think he's got a strong hand in the uh, you know the storytelling beyond just playing the role, whether he's the director or not. He's he's got a very steady influence, and uh, you know I think he's he's very he's a very underrated actor. So you have another sports movie that um, is kind of in the pantheon. It always comes out. Uh, the Cutting Edge from 1992, hockey movie, figure skating movie. I think you could say it's a little bit of both. Uh, is it fair to say that that's the role that people recognize you for the most, even these days? hundred percent. I mean, I, I think I've been in like 80 or 90 movies and I, I think I could do 80 or 90 more. It's still going to say Topic on my gravestone because <laughs> it's just it's just ingrained in people. And I'm glad because I, I'm really proud of that movie. And Tony Gilroy wrote this great script and Moira Kelly was so good in the movie. And, and uh, you know, it was, just, it was just one of those things where everything came together. And uh, Roy Dutrice, the guy who played my coach, is just a great actor. And Paul Michael Glazer, who directed it, was at the top of his game. And, and so I just... I'm real proud of it. For a long time, I was a little disappointed that, you know, I made a hockey movie that was not Slapshot. You know, yeah. it was sort of like a figure skating movie. But then I've come to realize it's just that you can't compete apples and oranges. Uh, I also noticed, I watched it last week, and it, it's, you know, truth be told, it's probably the first time I watched it start to finish. I usually catch it somewhere in the middle and, uh, you know, over the last 20-something years. Uh, Dwyer Brown, who was in Field of Dreams, is, uh, is a co-star in this. Yeah, Dwyer's a great guy, and, and I actually ran into him, uh, he's obviously, he plays Kevin Costner's dad in Field of Dreams, and he, I ran into him at Wrigley Field, uh, he, he goes around, he has almost like a uh, a secular baseball ministry that he goes around and he tries to, you know, he connects with people over baseball, it's really, it's kind of cool, but he's a great guy, and he, I thought he was terrific in The Cutting Edge. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it holds up, so I guess, and do you find that it's, more female driven because of the figure skating or are there are a lot of guys that come up and talk to you about it too well I, I think it's like a chick movie that guys can sit through and and uh you know that's i think that's all you can hope for you know i mean i can't there's a lot of chick movies we go down the list that i you know i get 20 minutes in and i'm rolling my eyes so <laughs> I, so i i take pride in that i can i can get the guys to stick through the end and you know i'll tell you for the new york uh, hockey fans uh, one great thing happened out of the cutting edge when i first started uh skating it was another situation. I didn't know how to skate, and so they gave me three months to learn. And Ron Gresham was a good friend of mine, still a good friend of mine. He was had just retired from the Rangers, mm-hmm. and he uh, he said, "I'll be." They gave me these three months to learn to skate. He said, "I'll be your coach. Come on, you don't have to pay me. Let's go." And so he took me to the rink a few times, and I had other coaches as well. But he put me on the Rangers at the, at that time. They still called it the old timers team, not the alumni. So I got to meet, you know, Rod Gilbert and Pete Stemkowski and Pierre LaRouche and all these great Rangers that I'd grown up watching. I was a Rangers fan, by the way, not Islanders. And uh, anyway, uh, so after I'm skating for like six weeks, Gresham said to me one night in the bar where we did most of our serious work, he said, uh, um, you're going to play in the, in the, uh, the game against the Islanders, old-timers wow. game in Long Beach, like at the Islanders practice rank or wherever. Oh, I don't wow. know exactly what the building was. Pretty big barn. I'm skating for six weeks. They give me a jersey. I got a cage on. I don't even know how a hockey warm up goes. I've never, you know, I've never been early enough to the game to see the warm up. 
So I'm in the middle of the warm with all these former NHL guys, and they didn't tell the Islanders that this was going on. So, and, and at that time, there's still obviously, to this day, there's a lot of bad blood. But back then, in the 90s, I mean, there was a lot of bad blood. Yeah. So I'm in the warm-up. I go up against the glass, and I'm trying to figure out where to go. I remember they gave me number 42, and I was like, all right, I'm 42. And I'm standing by the by the window, and these two guys have a program behind me, Islander fans, I think, and they go, who the heck is 42? And I hear the <laughs> other guy go, I don't know, but he must have had a lot of injuries. <laughs> so look that I'm trying, good, to huh? the wall, trying not to fall down, and, and uh, you know, I get on the bench. I'm sitting next to Pierre LaRousse. I said, what, what do I do? And he says, you just go to the net and keep her stick on the ice. So I was like, <laughs> okay, go to the net. He said, all right. So I go in on the second shift. I'm on the ice. Pierre shoots her off my stick, and it goes into the net. I'm, I score. I couldn't believe it. I was oh, like, wow. I just got a goal. And it wasn't one of these 9-8 games. It was like 5-3 or something. Later in the game, I got another goal the same way, and Pierre did the same thing. I get in the locker room later. Everybody's high-fiving Pierre and giving him 50 bucks. <laughs> he had bet the whole team that he could score the most goals off my stick. Really? <laughs> so I thought I was the hero. Ah, that's great. The assist is worth more than the goal there, huh? That's great. Holy. That's great. Hey, you've had a number of other projects that uh, revolve around sports. And one of the ones that I have not seen, but I thought was kind of interesting, your the, your directorial debut, Two Tickets to Paradise. It Am I correct that this revolves around a guy's trip to the college football national championship game? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a story. I wanted to do a movie about, you know, it was I wrote it with Brian Curry, who wrote the movie Green Book. And he's a good friend of mine, and we wanted to write a movie. Uh, I guess the inspiration, without getting too high and mighty about it, was he's from Boston, I'm from New York, and, and you know, 9-11 happened, and we were sort of thinking, my God, who, who, you know, there's no movies coming out of Hollywood that, like, if I was a like a first responder or somebody, I wanted to go home and just get my mind off all this stuff that I would go watch. So that was literally the first thought of it. We started writing a movie about, okay, let's go to a small town, Pennsylvania. Let's try and figure out. And so we wrote this movie, and uh, it took several years to get it made. And so finally, when we did get it made, you know, it was just a, it was a great, great experience. And uh, and it's been uh, it's been fun having people come over over the years. And say uh, I saw that movie, and I loved it. And you know, Brian's one of the funniest guys you'll ever meet. So we're, we're really proud of the dialogue in the movie. And you got another one that um, I. It's it should be in like the wheelhouse for me, but I somehow escaped it. You got co-stars Michael Warren, Bo Kimball, and Hakeem Olajuwon in a movie called Heaven Is a Playground. What can you tell us about that? Heaven Is a Playground is actually uh, it's based on a great book by Rick Tallender, who's a sports writer for the oh, Chicago sure. Sun Times, mm-hmm. and it's a it's a story that it's a true his own memoir about his experience as a young guy in New York. And he uh, he just got out of college. He had played football at uh, Northwestern and actually was drafted by the Chiefs and had a year there. And, you know, he was, his athletic career was coming to an end. He's trying to figure out what to do. So he went to and organized, like, some guys that didn't have a basketball team and sort of made a team and uh, kind of like a low-rent Harlem Globetrotters. And they'd run around New York and play these games. So he wrote this memoir about it. And then it got turned into a movie. And this is... Uh, I guess about 25 years ago. And so they set the movie in Chicago. I'm not sure why they made that change, but I think it was because they thought they could get a young Michael Jordan to play the part <laughs> that Bo Kimball ended up playing. And he was talking about it and he was signed up for a while. And then I guess it was right as he was going from Michael Jordan with like a small M and a small J to Michael Jordan <laughs> with like a capital M and a capital yeah. J. Yeah. And his agents, I think talked him out of it. And so we ended up, you know, Bo Kimball's a great guy. And we ended up having a fun time with the movie and Richard Jordan, the late great actor was in it. And, uh, it was just, it was a fun experience, but it's not much of a movie, really. Um, the best part about the movie was 
watching, uh, you know, Hakeem Olajuwon. He came for like two days. And, you know, he, he was one of the freak athletes of all time. Like, I don't think he played basketball until he was a, like a junior in high school. He was a soccer goalie. Mm-hmm. And just the athleticism that guy had was unbelievable. So, uh, you know, so I, I would chalk that one up to, uh, it was a fun experience. I got to be friends with Rick Tellender, the writer, and, uh, he's still my friend to this day. And, uh, but the movie itself is, uh, it's a bit, it's a bit of a mess. Uh, you actually did get to be in a movie with Michael Jordan. Uh, I don't think anybody knew at the time that Michael B. Jordan would become the star he's become. He was one of the kids in Hardball. Yeah, yeah, he, and I remember him like as a little kid. I mean, not because a lot of child actors are you know pain in the ass, and and, and most of them flame out. But he, <laughs> something about that kid, you could tell he was uh, you know he, he had something going on. And I just really I've not run into him since since he's become such a big success with, with the Rocky reboot and everything, and. And uh, Black Panther, and but he's doing a great job, and I'm I'm rooting for him. I'm in his corner. Yeah, Hardball's movie with Keanu Reeves and Diane Lane. Uh, you, I mean, you really seem to be attracted to this. I'm, I mean, I'm looking up your stuff, and you've got a, a wrestling movie called Going to the Mat. You've got Underdogs, which co-stars one of your childhood heroes, Joe Namath. I mean, you've you've got a big sports connection with a lot of your Hollywood work. Yeah, you know that that. The Joe Namath thing was great because uh, I my first job in the business was on Broadway in a show called The King Mini Court Martial. And I came in at the end of the run, like the last six weeks. When Broadway shows announced their closing, they a lot of the cast members, they'll jump, they'll leave the show to go to a new show that has a chance to run longer. Mm-hmm. Or to, it's at the beginning of its growth period. And so I got a chance to be in that play. It was the, the first thing I ever had. And two weeks after I joined, another guy jumped out of the cast and Joe Namath came in to replace him. Wow. I think he replaced Michael Moriarty. Uh, no, no, he, Michael Moriarty was playing a different role, and then Joe came in and replaced somebody else. So anyway, uh, so I got to know Joe Namath really well at that time, and it was pretty exciting doing a play. And, and he would hang out after the show. Like actors are famous for like getting their makeup off and get the costume off, and getting the heck out of the theater. Yeah, but athletes are more like let's hang around, you know. So I'd sit in Joe's. You know, I had the little cramp. Uh, closet upstairs shared with three guys dressing room and he had the, the star dressing room downstairs so I'd go down and I'd have a drink with Joe Namath in his locker room and it was and then we'd, they'd finally you know we'd go outside it'd be like 11.30 at night step out on the street in the middle of Broadway and I'd be like man I'm I'm in show business I'm standing here with Joe Namath with, really with Broadway Joe there you go right yeah it was unbelievable so then years later with the underdogs a friend of mine Doug Dirt directed that he asked me to come in and do that and, and, uh, and I did and uh and they got Joe, and it was an Ohio shoot, and they brought Joe in to play. Like, you know, he's a friend of somebody's friend. He comes in and gives the inspirational speech to my team. And, uh, you know, it was, it was really fun to see Joe again. So you've got a project that's coming out now, and um, you sent me the uh, the preview of it. Now, tell it's about a four- or five-minute clip. Uh, it, set this up for me as far as what this is going to become. It's called Two Dumb Mix. It's basically Doug Dorsey and Rudy all grown up. <laughs> Um, the, the genesis of this thing is, uh, again, like the same way with uh, Two Things Paradise, it's like trying to think of an audience that, you know, is underserved. So I just thought comedy right now, and in, in, well, we, I started it last, in 2018 is when we started, I started writing it, but uh, it's, it's, comedy's gotten tricky because, you know, everybody gets offended by everything. So <laughs> I was trying to think of what, what you can do that you're, that you're allowed to do. And I thought, well, you're, you know, a pie in the face is pretty universal, and who can get offended by that as long as it equal groups get hit with pies in the face everybody should be happy so i thought i want to do like a slapstick old school you know laurel and hardy type you know comedy thing and so i thought about all the people i would worked with 
who I want to work with again. And Sean Austin and I did Memphis Bell back in 1990, and I bumped into him every five or six years. And he's one of the greatest guys in Hollywood, just such a nice guy. He also brings that thing, like, I think he made the Lord of the Rings because that, that whole thing is a little bit silly, but he's got so much heart that you just stay there and you hang in with it. And it's, you know, and obviously it pays off if you stay through the whole three movies. Mm-hmm. But I think it's because of him. So I wanted to work with him again. So I wrote this part. And I asked him to do it, and uh, so we shot this thing. It's about these two idiots that meet in a drunk tank, and uh, one guy has an idea of how they could pay off the best DUI lawyer. It's not a good idea, so <laughs> but they act on the idea. And that's the short version of it. And then uh, it, it sets up subsequent episodes, which I've written 10 more episodes, and we're going to try and uh, you know produce those this summer. We were going to save this first episode to just be the first of 10 that all play together, but I just thought, you know, with this uh, quarantine now, everybody needs a laugh, so I just thought we'll unleash it right now. And it's uh, it's coming out April 1st? April 1st on Facebook Live at 7 Eastern. And uh, after that, it'll be on Facebook and YouTube. People can watch it. And hopefully, uh, if you like it, you leave a comment, respond, tell your friends. Because, you know, whether or not we make nine more or five more or no more is going to be based on how many people want it. And you and Sean do some sort of Q&A with us, right? Yeah, we're going to have a Q&A. Uh, right after it's over, we're going to talk, answer questions. And, uh, you know, so they'll... And anybody that wants to, uh, you know, share it with their friends, and we'll probably do another one of these in a couple of weeks where we'll have, uh, you know, an interactive event where people can uh, engage with us as well. I, I, I love it. You're right. It's good for a laugh. A time when people need something to laugh at, this is just good, old-fashioned, silly humor. And it's funny that you mentioned, like, people getting offended by everything. The first glance of the title, Two Dumb Mix, you're, like, scratching your head a little bit. It's just two guys named Mickey. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's it's definitely a play on, you know, I grew up, I'm an Irish-American guy, I grew up with a bunch of guys, and, you know, it's we used to call each other that, not meanly, you know, I mean, and, and I have friends, my sister lives in Ireland, and if you really want to piss off an actual Irishman, you call him a patty, okay. so the Mick thing is kind of an American thing, and, you know, it's, it, I don't know, I just, it was sort of a little, I, I could have softened the title, but I wanted to keep it, we're making fun of ourselves, so please play along with us yeah i listen it's all in good fun and are all of them the same like four or five minute variety they're probably going to end up being a little bit longer seven or eight minutes because that you know i'm being educated by the people in this world of short content that's the, the sweet spot is seven eight nine minutes so they're probably going to get a little longer which is going to be easier for me because i cut a bunch of stuff out of this that i thought was funny because i was shooting five minutes i thought that was the sweet spot when we made it but i was wrong so they're going to get a little longer and uh we got some incredible guest stars that are lined up, and it's, it's going to be, I think it's really going to be a fun thing. That's great. Uh, and again, Facebook Live on April 1st, 7 o'clock Eastern? April 1st, 7 o'clock Eastern, yeah. And uh, it is not an April Fool's joke. It is, that's actually going to be the, the uh, broadcast premiere. All right, so what's a dream project for you from the sports world? What's something that, whether it's something you still want to act in, whether it's something you want to direct, is there something you've kind of been holding on to all these years as a sports project to say, man, I would love to get this done? You know, there's, there's uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's in the world of racing, actually, uh, uh, car racing. And I, I grew up, you know, kind of watching. There was a, I grew up in Shoreham on Long Island. And in Riverhead, there was a thing called the Riverhead Raceway. And I used to go out there, and it was a drag track, and you'd see, like, the quarter-mile, you know, cars. And so I've always kind of been a little bit of a motorhead and interested in cars. And I just feel like there's something – Days of Thunder was a great movie. Um, I wasn't much for Talladega Nights. I didn't think it was as funny as I thought it was. And I just feel like that there's there's still a great movie to be made in the world of NASCAR. And, and you know, just an escapist kind of movie – 
probably got to be a guy who's got the odds against him or a girl who's, you know, trying to come up through the ranks. And I, I don't know. I just think that's world, that world's kind of cool. I went, I went to one race out in California of the, you know, real NASCAR st- stuff. I can't remember the town outside of Los Angeles where they have it, but it was, it was incredible. I mean, it's, it's such a spectacle and people are listening on the headphones to all the different communications between the cars. And it's, it's, uh, I, I, don't, I think it's a cool world and, and maybe, maybe it can't be today. Maybe it has to be 30 years ago. I don't know. Sports movies, I think often work better when they're not present day, because then you can sort of turn off your, okay, this is not reality. You know, you can sort of say, okay, this is back once upon a time. So that's, that's something I'd like to do. You know, I love the horse racing world as well. So those, those two areas of sports, I think would be cool. I love football. I mean, but football is a tough one to make into a movie. Um, just because it's so subtle, you know, the, the differences between, you know, whatever, some guy did an out route, he did it one step too quick. I don't know how do you communicate that to the audience that, you know, that's why he failed. So, uh, you know, I, I think that racing and boxing, there's a reason that there's so many movies about those because you know who won. The guy's laying down lost. The guy, you know, came in second uh, at, the, at the checkered flag. It, it's a little easier storytelling-wise. It's funny you mentioned that, though, about, you know, the setting of it because I, I recently had a chance to have a great conversation with Angelo Pizzo who wrote Rudy and Hoosiers. And one of the things he talked about Hoosiers is it doesn't date because it's already dated. When you do a period piece, when you do something that's set in the past, it you know you, you don't see it age poorly over the course of say five or ten years. And you know Hoosiers we talked about one of the great sports movies of all time. Uh, one of those reasons is you don't look at the basketball action and say, oh look how it's dated. It's already set in a dated time. Yeah, I, I think. For sure, I think that's that's a great way to say it. I leave it to a writer to say it better than me, but um, I think that's exactly that's exactly right. And, uh, and you know, it's funny you just mentioned Hoosiers again. That made me think of another movie, Miracle. And, and the thing that Miracle yes. and Hoosiers have in common is that they have a bunch of quote unquote unknown guys playing the players. And that was so smart because now you're not trying to figure out like, oh, okay, Keanu Reeves is the goalie. Now I got to pretend it's not the guy from the Matrix as the goalie. So I think that's another smart thing to do in sports movies is to have people who are not recognizable from another role. I guess I'm arguing against myself here in a way, but <laughs> I think it's, I still think it's true. I mean, I mean, the guys in Hoosiers who played, they were all were pretty good basketball players and the guys in Miracle, I think could all skate. Like they had sequences there that were unbelievable. And, and, uh, so I think that might be one of the keys too is that, you know, you don't ask, uh, you know, somebody, a household face to, to play somebody that we already know from other media sources. So are there, listen, you've had a really good career. Are there any regrets about not being Shoeless Joe in Field of Dreams also? I mean, I, I would have loved to, to have done that. I think that would have been great. I mean, I, there's certainly uh, some, uh, you know, some movies that I wish I had been in. Uh, but, no, I, I, you know, I've always been, I, I read this book when I was in college. Uh, it was given to me by one of the acting teachers, and it was called Be Here Now. And it's like a 60s hippie book. It was mostly like drawings, and it was like all about taking acid. It was kind of a, I couldn't really wrap my head around the book, but the title of it always stuck with me as the best advice you could ever have as an actor is be here now. And I've always just tried to go by that ethos. And, and later on when I studied the Sanford Miser, not Miser technique, that's kind of like what they're getting at. They're trying to train you to be here now. And I thought, well, I already know how to do that. I'm just going to be in the moment that I'm in. And so I, I, I I never made my career my priority. I was always thinking, wow, what has being here where I am right now, what opportunity do I have? And, you know, I, got, I was at Game 7 when the Rangers won the Stanley Cup. I've been to so many great sporting events. I've been to the Kentucky Derby. I've been to the 8500. And 
I've, I've been to great cultural events. I've been all over Europe. And so I've, I've just lived my life. And uh, I suppose if I focused on my career as like my number one priority, maybe I'd have more dough, but I wouldn't have better experiences. Well, there are only about 20,000 people who were at Game 7 when the Rangers won. Uh, that must have been a life-changing experience. It was incredible. And uh, the thing that I'll, uh, I have a lot of great memories, uh, but one of the greatest memories was going with the team to the auction house. Uh, this guy named John Baronis, who had this bar, great bar on the Upper East Side, and yeah. the it was kind of where the Rangers hung out. And uh, we we went there uh, after midnight after this you know after this team meal and the whole thing and went up and and it was just a team and maybe family so maybe seventy five people in this bar and everybody's hanging out all night drinking out of the Stanley Cup and so at dawn we go outside and there's there's like police barricades there's horses there's like five thousand Ranger fans outside this bar waiting to get a glimpse of Messier with the cup it was unbelievable I'll never forget that. I've been to that place, and I heard that story. I was probably there, I don't know, like maybe like a year or two after. Uh, I've heard that story that this is where the Rangers came with the cup after. It's uh, That's, you know, and I don't know. Hey, it's one of the other successful things about sports movies is you take something that's happened a long time ago that's somewhat familiar, but you've got an entire generation that really doesn't know a whole lot about it. Maybe there's something in that project for you. I'd be great. You know, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I guess I'd have to be, I gotta be a coach at this point. I can't be a player <laughs> right. anymore, but, uh, or I maybe mean, I could be the, a couple more years I can be the owner. Maybe. But, uh, try yeah, to be that, Neil that was, Smith, that was an incredible moment. And, and I think cinematically there'd be something there because, you know, we didn't have texting yet in 94, obviously. So actually that was like one person calling another person, calling another person, calling another person. And over a period of three or four hours, ending up to 5,000 people. That That's just like an amazing you know, a moment to, to have that, you could, you know, show that moment in the movie of how, how every how this crowd assembled, like just like a kind of a flash mob, old school uh, analog flash mob. That's a really great point because nowadays somebody would just take a quick video and post it and all of a sudden we would be watching Marc Messier and the Stanley Cup at this bar in New York City. Yeah, I think I think in a, in a, in a sad way for my kids and for, you know, going forward, it, it cheapens a lot of things because... You know, the the people that were in that bar obviously had a right, they all belonged there, but it was like winning the lottery to be there in that moment and have that experience. It was not something that could be, you know, bought and sold. It wasn't something that could be communicated to other people who who would just show up then. You know, it was, it was like you had to be there. Yeah, that's fantastic. Listen, uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. I hope we get to do it again. Good luck with Two Dumb Mix on Facebook Live. Uh, April 1st, and I'll tell people again how to get that in just a second. So thanks again for that, and uh, and good luck with it. Thanks a lot, sweetie. Take care of our name. <laughs> Absolutely. It's good to finally catch up with you. You too. Take care. My thanks to D.B. Sweeney, and once again, you can catch the premiere of Two Dumb Mix Tuesday, April 1st at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Facebook Live. I've seen a preview of the five-minute pilot, uh, which is what you'll see, and it's a really funny premise. Gives you a few laughs, and isn't that something we all could use right now? Just some laughs. Check it out and be on the lookout for the follow-ups as well. If you're new here... Please check out the archive of 30 with Murdy at radio.com, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. Some of my recent episodes include a conversation with Angelo Pizzo, the screenwriter of Hoosiers and Rudy. He's also written a Mickey Mantle script that he says is better than both of them, but still has not been made into a movie. And I also recently spoke to Bobby Richardson, the great Yankee second baseman from the 1950s and 60s, who shares some memories 
from those great championship teams. So please check those out. Subscribe, review, and all that jazz. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Please stay home, stay safe, and thank you for listening. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.